0: Yeah, so you probably figured out the parking lot did not get finished before the conference, and uh, you know we've all done house projects before, but I, I I think really the the COVID issues have really impacted the timetable in terms of getting supplies and whatnot. So Lord willing, we got another pour coming on Monday, and hopefully that will be done soon. So continue to pray with us there. Um, well, let's turn in our Bibles to First Timothy. And uh, last time I introduced you to the book, we kind of talked a little bit about uh, who wrote it and why they wrote it and where they were, and we get a little bit of that from uh, what we call the internal evidence of the book, that is, things we learn in the book itself, and then there's some things we can learn from the book of Acts and uh, other uh, sources there. So let me start the PowerPoint for you, and then I'll put it up on the screen here. Okay, so we're calling this Instructions for a Healthy Church, and you say, where does that come from? Well, we'll look look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now now look at this, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on an emphasis so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. So if we were to go back to the book of Acts, and particularly Acts chapter 20 and surrounding um, chapters there, we, we understand that Paul spent about three and a half years at the church in Ephesus, a, a large investment of time and effort there. There's a, a, a tearful uh, departure that Paul makes uh, there, and he, he gives that speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts. And uh, you remember we saw this last time. He actually says to the elders before he leaves, I know that after I leave, false teaching is going to come into the church, and I'm warning you right now to be ready for that. And sure enough, just a few years later, here we are in First Timothy, which is being written probably about the mid-60s A.D., and uh, we have exactly what Paul had predicted. We have false teachers that have come into the church, and uh, they are uh, causing the church to stray from sound doctrine and from things that really matter. And so Paul picks up his pen to write uh, to his young spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, on how to how to handle that they were together in macedonia right they're they're, they're together excuse me they they're together in ministry paul departs for macedonia and tells timothy you stay in ephesus and you know address these issues that we found there so that that's sort of the occasion for the book so so really the the, the book has two ways you can look at it in one sense we're thinking about it from the standpoint of this is the Apostle's instruction to a young elder on how, how to instruct, how to care for a church so that it is healthy. And that's where we get the, the title, Instructions for a Healthy Church. The other way you can sort of think about it is to think of it about what does it mean to be a faithful pastor uh, and, and thus, hopefully you have a healthy church because this is of an apostle talking to a local elder pastor telling him, here's what you need to do to be faithful in leadership to try to bring this church back to a place of health. So we can look at it both ways and, and uh, maybe a way to think about it is we're gonna eavesdrop on this conversation between a couple of pastors. And uh, that helps us to know, well, what should our elder pastors be uh, doing? What should they be like? Uh, We learn a lot about biblical leadership in this book. But even more than that, we we learn about what does it mean to be a healthy church and what should we be doing to move toward uh, that situation in our own congregation. Pastoral guidance for a mature congregation would be another way to look at it. So in any case, that's what we're thinking about here, and that's... uh, uh, that's hopefully what we're going to uh, discover as we work through the book in the next probably 14 weeks or so. Um, so let's uh, let's kind of get into the message here. We we talked last time uh, about Paul and Timothy um, and their relationship. Paul's uh, likely led Timothy to Christ, discipled him, mentored him, and then took him on many of his missionary journeys. Uh, you'll often see as you read the New Testament, as you read the letters, that Paul and Timothy are together and uh at, at some point as he's growing in the faith uh he assumes a role of a formal leader a, a pastor elder in a local church there in Ephesus and uh but but these uh Paul and Timothy had had a very close uh and personal relationship with one another and so you'll notice as we read this uh, the book it, it is very personal at uh, at many points um, so that's where we're at that's where we're going and, uh, so let's look at it again, right? So, uh, we, he, we've introduced the book to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Uh, Paul, uh, Timothy was not Paul's biological son, but he was his sort of spiritual child, spiritual son, because of the, uh, the relationship that they had of discipleship there. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some of you uh, just came out of the, the Colossians study together with, with me, right? And and remember Colossians starts off and there's commendation and we're praying for you and and this is great. We're so encouraged and we don't have any of that here. <laughs> Paul goes right to the heart of the matter. Perhaps because he and Timothy are good friends and you know when you're with your friends, you know, you can kind of get down to the bottom line, right? Well, look at what he says here. He says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on it emphasis so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, look at those verses and tell me what made the doctrines strange. Uh, you know, he doesn't elaborate there, but he does give us a, a few examples there. Look at this. Um, paying attention to myths and endless genealogies giving rise to mere speculation what is Paul focusing on there that would make these strange doctrines that need to be uh, need to be stopped in terms of people teaching them what do you see there what's that okay man's wisdom right Yeah maybe some old Jewish heritage. Uh, I, I think I'm with you on that. How, how are you seeing that there? Yeah, genealogies. Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of genealogies in scripture. Um, those are God inspired, especially to help us to appreciate the history of the nation and particularly as it relates to the line leading to the Messiah. Right? Um, but like any, other good thing in Scripture, sometimes you can misuse those genealogies um, and uh, end up getting distracted from the main thing, can't you? So maybe there's a Jewish influence going on here, getting caught up in those genealogies in a way that that's unhelpful and distracting. Uh, what else do you see here? Yeah. Myths. myths. And, of course, we don't deal with any of those, right? Um, look at this. Pay attention to myths and endless genealogies would which, which give rise to mere speculation um, i uh, i was teaching at the conference this weekend and um, uh yeah i'll use this as an example um, <laughs> so you know we're teaching and you know relative, and someone came up and asked me a question and and the question was akin to the question, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? And I'm like, I hope that's not all you got out of my talk, you know, because I just utterly failed, if that's a, right, but but it was one, it was a question of theological speculation. And I said something like, you know, and he had given this plausible thing, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's okay, but I said, you know, the, the text doesn't go there. The text doesn't tell us that, and if the Bible is silent on that matter, we probably need to be a bit cautious, first of all, in how dogmatic we are on it, but we probably don't need to be focusing on that near as much as what the Bible does teach us, right? And uh, and we just need to go... Well, do you see... I mean, just let's just talk here as a family. Do, do you see things in our church, in our larger American evangelicalism, That are really just distractions because they amount to just speculation. Do you see some things like that? And if so, I'd I'd love for you to tell me what you're seeing. Anything that that we get to, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Bible codes. Um, this was, uh, some of you won't remember this because you're too young, but, uh, back around Y2K, um, this, this was really, I mean, it's been around, you know, for, for millennia, really, way back to, to early Jewish times. But, but essentially, um, some of you that are older will remember this, where there were, there was all these books that came out that if you, if you take the Bible, like, you know, the Hebrew text, and you count every ten letters, and you pull that and you count another ten letters and you pull that out. It says like, you know, Adolf Hitler invades, you know, there's like, you know, they're finding like prophecy and stuff like that. And yeah, so that's, it's mere speculation, right? And, and computer models and things like that. And of course, the Bible was never ever intended to be used like that. And, um, it, it, it's something of a, of a pseudo biblical form of astrology or, um, you know, like telling your fortune kind of thing, you know, but uh, yeah, that's, I remember that. Yeah. Regine. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I, I mentioned it back in Colossians. I, I am surprised how many Christians have adopted new age teaching today because new age sort of lops over into what is now considered part of healthcare. And um, it's just like, You know, you're seeing Christian books being advertised and you're going, that's not biblical. That's like, you know, new age energy field, you know, earthy Indian religion, animistic sort of stuff. And, and yeah, this myths can just be other religions, other things. Um, we think about what most people believe about the origin of the universe. Most people don't believe God created the heavens and the earth in six days, right? They believe in some long extended evolutionary process. And, and we know that that's not, that's not science, that that's a theory that amounts to a myth that conflicts with scripture. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff. So, but, but, but notice Paul's, Paul's point here is not to get into the weeds of what the false heresy is. What is his goal? And it will remind you a little bit of his approach to Colossians in terms of dealing with that heresy. Look what he says here. He says, <clears throat> you know, so, so teach these men not to, not to teach strange, strange doctrines, to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, um, rather than what? Furthering the administration of God which is by faith. He comes right back to the main thing. What's the main point in Christianity? It's the gospel. The administration of God by faith is, is Pauline's shorthand for the gospel, isn't it? And, and here's what he says, and I think this is a great criteria, and then we'll, we'll catch up on the notes here in a minute. But look, look what he says, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. And, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what he's, what he's thinking about here. I mean, he says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Um, And some men, look at this, some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There's nothing worse than somebody who's misguided and confident about it, right? And sadly, the church tends to attract people like that um but but what's the point the point is false teaching is dangerous for lots of reasons but paul is most concerned that this false teaching is distracting from the gospel and it's not serving the end that people would love God and neighbor more right the goal of our instruction is love and you know that's a that's a great litmus test isn't it Everything that we do as a church community, everything we do as believers ought to be furthering the gospel and growing our hearts in love for God and for neighbor. And one of the things, I mean, I like to talk about things, I like to talk theology, I like to, you know, get into the weeds with, you know, everybody else in terms of all sorts of theological debates and whatnot. And what Paul is saying is, if that's not furthering the gospel, and if it's not helping you to love God and love your neighbor more, you probably don't need to be doing it. Um, the end of everything we need to do, that's, that's, I think that's why, you know, they're called the two greatest commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Cause that's, everything we do funnels to serve love in that way, for God and for others. And um, we, we should look at ministries we do in the church and say, "Is this growing our love for God and our love for neighbor?" We should look at awana and say, "Is this growing our love for God and our love for neighbor our home groups? is this growing our love for God, and our love for neighbor and, and, and if and if it, the answer is no or maybe it 's probably not no it 's probably well, maybe we could do better then that 's where we should get in there and be uh, adjusting what we do. So that it serves the purpose, guys. It, it is so easy to get distracted in the details and minutia of hundreds of things we do, and miss the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. And I'm I'm guilty of that, just like you struggle with that. So Paul, Paul right out of the gate says, Timothy, you got to have you got to have your 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 pastoral vision fixed with laser-like precision on the goal that you're trying to help people to further the gospel and further love for God and neighbor, and everything you do ought to direct and support and encourage and, and further that along. Um, so back under your notes here, let's catch up here. Uh, the first thing he says is you've got to deal with false teaching and those who support it, right? Uh, how do you deal with false teachers? Well, you remind them that the goal of true instruction is love the goal of true instruction is love the cross reference to Matthew 22 uh, the two great commandments there uh, Jesus offered those and of course he, he's not making up new things that goes back to the old testament and um but we we summarize those in the sense that these are the two great commandments and and the goal there is uh is love uh, notice um and i don't want to belabor the point here but th- the goal is not theological precision As an end in itself. Does that make sense? We need to get doctrine right. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to, to make sure that our teaching is faithful to scripture. Yes, 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 yes. But not because, you know, that's the goal. That's the me, you know, right teaching, right doctrine is the means to get us to more love for God and neighbor and the furthering of the gospel. So that's why uh sound doctrine and, and and being so careful in that is is so important. But sometimes we we, we can feel like oh, we get to orthodoxy and that's the finish line. But that it's not the finish line. That's just that's just the way to to get us there. Yeah, Katie. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, the, so the question is, you know, is there a distinction between people that start off well, you know, could they really be true believers and they just get off track, maybe they come back or people that just depart and they never come back? Um, yeah, I think those can be two different scenarios. I mean, John mentions one of those in his, in 1 John, where, uh, he, he talks about, um, some people in the assembly that started off with us, but they didn't remain with us, and they didn't remain in order to, for it to be shown that they were never really of us. So I, I think th- there's a time for that. Hebrews talks about that as well. Um, but you know, I, you also have people, um, in scripture who got off track for a little bit, and God brings them back, and, um, you know, <laughs> Um, it's funny, um, you know how uh, if you have like a like a jogging app on your phone, or, or maybe like a Google Maps that that tracks your route, and uh, you know sometimes when you're jogging, you're like, okay, it's, it's this sidewalk and that, you know, it's kind of this squiggly line. I kind of think that when we get to heaven, God might show us the track of our life, you know, and it's going to be like, you know, when you're 14 year old or 15 year is learning how to drive for the first time and they're kind of, you know, they're weaving all over the road. And, and I feel like that that's what we do as believers is, you know, we get off a little bit and then we correct, and we get off a little bit and we correct and, but we're moving toward the right direction. And, uh, and that's, um, I think that's the, 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 the main thing there is that we're moving in the right direction. So the goal of our instruction is love. Look at this. And these these may be nuanced uh, or, or they may simply be saying the same thing three different ways. But look what he says. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What do you think he means by, by those terms? Yeah, right motivations, okay? And again, we, we can talk about a good conscience versus a sincere faith. But I think what he's saying is your love for God and neighbor... Is not the sort of love that God would want if it's not being motivated from the right heart. It's not an external thing. I think is what he's saying um, that there's a sincerity in love. That there's a there's a good conscience in love, m- meaning uh, my conscience isn't convicting me. It's 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 rightly informed. Uh, it, it's helping me to move that direction. A pure heart, right? There's no hidden motives. There's no um, You know, games that are being played and, and, and again, this is such a good criteria, guys. When you get up in the morning and say, what does God want me to do with my life? And there's a hundred things on your Google calendar and, and that pop into your head and you, and you've got soccer games and work deadlines and bills to pay. And and now that's my house too. And what Paul is reminding us is, hey, all those things might be necessary, but let's, let's be focused that, that the goal of why God has us here is that we would love Him, that we would love our neighbor, and that we would further the gospel purpose in the world. And everything else that we're going to do in life ought to serve that or support that in some way. And uh, and conversely, we might be really active in church, and we might be really active in the community, and we might be doing all sorts of things, and, and, if, and if it comes down to it, my heart is not sincere in love for God and neighbor, then... I got some things I need to change. Because that's the goal, that's the point. Okay? So that's, that's what we're thinking about. Now, now notice, he's gonna connect this now to the false teachers, because the false teachers are teaching things, I mean, he, he doesn't say they're necessarily all bad or wrong, what he's saying is, they're distracting you from this goal and purpose. And that's why you you know the, the greatest enemy in the church is not you know devil ology, Satanology. It's things that sound very Christian and might be even useful to some ways, but distract us from the main thing of love for God and neighbor and furthering the gospel. And we have to be on the lookout for those things. Uh, how do you spot a false teacher? Well, look, he gives us a criteria. Verse 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside, look at this, to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So, so we've got three... Uh, Marks, I guess, of a false teacher here. I, he, he's just trying to help us to, to see that. They promote teaching that leads to speculation. That, that's the main thing. That's consistent with what he says starting off. Whatever they're teaching, it may not be horribly wrong or unbiblical. I mean, it may be that. But the, 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 what he's concerned about is it's, it's leading us to be moving in an area of speculation and distraction Rather than furthering the administration of the gospel and loving God and neighbor. Here's another thing you have to be really, really careful about in the local church. And, and, and can I, can I just say, I think the danger here, I mean, it's certainly our congregation, but, but when you read verses six to seven, I want you to be thinking about blogs, Facebook posts of a religious nature, um, popular Christian books, uh, things that you're, Reading online and 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 things that are being promoted, right? That's where you need to. Sh- it it um. Pastor Terry and I, the elders and I, talk about this all the time. Anybody can be an expert in the church today. Anybody can be an expert. Anybody can write a blog. Anybody can write a book. Um. And, and in some ways, hey, that's great. We got great books from, by authors that in the past never could have afforded to do so, and it's great content. Great. But, but the flip side of that is everybody, anybody can go online and be an expert. And a lot of the danger here is somebody who is making confident assertions online and has no idea what they're talking about. Um, one of the dangers of confidence is it makes you sound like you know what you're doing. And so we have to look past confidence to investigate biblical fidelity, meaning we have to look past that confident blog writer or, or popular teacher on the Internet or whatever and say, this person is bold, but are they biblical? They're confident, but are they rightly dividing the Bible? And so we have to be discerning here, and I think this is more of a problem as we would associate online than it is in our own congregation here, although we need to be vigilant on both fronts. And yeah, I say a confidence not based on biblical truth. There's nothing worse than a confident person who's misguided, because confident people often lack humility, and humility is the mark that you need to recognize when you might be wrong and need to change. Uh, Let's not forget that biblical confidence is based on the fear of the Lord, not your own opinion of yourself, right? The Proverbs say, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, which means uh, my confidence as a believer is in my Savior. It's in my God and His Word. It's not in myself. It's not in my talents and my abilities. At least it shouldn't be. And so it's not that confidence is bad. It's a misplaced confidence, um, so we need to be careful to to look out for that uh, teaching that leads to speculation, a desire to be teachers without biblical understanding, and a confidence that's not based on biblical truth. Let's let's look let's work together to look out for that. Notice this, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean we we can we can turn to the proverbs and, and recognize that um, uh, biblically informed experience is a good thing right so experience is not an enemy or wrong um but and sincerity is better than insincerity but but sincerity and experience do not automatically mean that there is a uh, a biblical reliability in what they're saying so we just need to go beyond sincerity and experience to say, does this line up with Scripture? It's it's always, we've said this for years, right? We'll just be a good Berean, right? Let, let's study the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And hopefully, if they're sincere and they're misguided, that you can have a, a kind conversation with that person about it. And, and if they're humble, then they're going to be receptive to that. So, yeah, Grant? Yeah, no, that's good. You look at just the fundamental doctrines. What do they believe? There Are they denying basic doctrines? Here, here's... Here's a Pastor Terry and I have have done this for years. I don't know if we've ever really said it before, but you know, if you're reading some blog, you're reading some book, some you know Christian post or whatever, the the first thing you should want to ask yourself is where does this person go to church? And it's amazing how many online experts are not active members in a good church. And then you want to ask, well, who are their elders? You know, uh, do they because God has ordained uh, you know godly. Uh, qualified men to lead in local congregations and, and those men are in charge of making sure that what's going out of that church is sound doctrine. And uh, I'm just saying it the way it is, a lot of what happens is people remove themselves from that place of protection in the local church under godly elders and when they take themselves out of that and they're just some online independent expert, that puts them in a place of spiritual danger and in a place where they're much more likely to be deceived because they don't have the community of the local church with godly pastors helping them just like we, we all need that you know i don't want i don't want to go out and be some expert outside of grace bible church cuz i need this community just like you need this community to make sure that we're moving in the right direction cuz you know we're all prone to to getting off with things so yes Yeah. Yeah. So then the next question is, what kind of church is it? Right. And and it may may not be a good church. So, yeah. um, Yeah. Great. Yeah. What are they trying to sell? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I think that takes us back to Paul's point. He says, what we ought to see is the furthering of the gospel and love for God and neighbor. And if it fails that test, we should be suspicious, shouldn't we? Okay, I've been very good. Now, another thing that these guys were doing—look at verse eight—is they were confused about the law, and this is a very common, uh, a common issue in the early church. Verse eight, he says, "We, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners." for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So, so again, he's not coming out and saying it, but I think the illusion there is these false teachers are mishandling the, what we would call the the Old Testament law, the instructions of the Old Testament in some way. Again, he doesn't call out uh, the Judaizers like he does in Galatians and in other places, but um, they were mishandling the law, and and that was you know they were being confident about misusing the law. So let's just remind ourselves here: the law is good, not bad. The law is good, not bad. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Um, the law was given by God to demonstrate that this is what righteousness is. Right? This is the law, the moral law demonstrates, uh, the will of God. But to fallen people, what does it do? It shows us that we can't measure up to God's standard of righteousness, right? It, it, it brings us to conviction. And that, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, the law is good, but remember, the law is designed to bring conviction to sinners. Uh, and that they might see their need for a savior. And of course, um, one of the trends in Judaism when Paul's writing this is people have taken the law, they've added to the law, they've misconstrued the law, they've made, they've made the law a means of getting right to God, with God, rather than seeing the law as the tool that God uses to bring us to conviction of our sin so that we'll see our need for a Savior. So they're confused about that. And that happens today. I mean, th- th- there are Christians that think there is no place for the moral law in the life of Christians. Sometimes we call them antinomian. That word literally means, you know, against the law or not not law. Um, and there are people that misunderstand the Old Testament. There are people that um, don't know what to do with the Old Testament law. So so we can appreciate the dilemma here to some degree uh, that we need to understand how to use and, and properly use the Old Testament law. So they were saying things like the the law is bad in some way, uh, whereas Paul says the law is good. It was designed to convict sinners. And this is part of God's glorious plan called the gospel. Why? Look at verse 11. He says, um, uh, you know, it's designed to bring uh, conviction to sinners, right? Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, meaning part of God's plan of the gospel is to use the law to lead us to repentance. And again, that, that was something that apparently these false teachers were uh, misunderstanding and apparently teaching in a confident way, and yet a way that was misguided. Uh, we talked a lot about this in Colossians, but, um, but that's, that's, a good, that's a good topic for us to just think about, is uh, what is the proper use, particularly of the Old Testament law, um, and uh we've uh, we've talked about that recently but but that's an area to look out for I, I think um i mean some of the some of the more recent things i remember uh, this is probably 20 years ago i walked into the Mardell christian store and they had like this like fruit snack thing you know it's it's right you know right at the at the checkout stand you know the the uh, what do they call those the impulse buy items right and it was they they had pulled some Food recipe from some obscure text in the Old Testament, and this—you know—this is God's snack, this God-inspired snack. And I'm going, I don't think that was the intent of, uh, right? But but you know that, that people—and that's an extreme example—but you know people misuse those Old Testament instructions. I mean, you know, you you don't want to you don't want uh, to follow the Samson plan of biblical leadership, do you, right? You don't want to make these people in the Old Testament heroes of, you know, this is how we follow the will of God. You know, we, we misuse the Old Testament. And, and shameless plug, this is why you need to come to our Monday night class, because we're going to talk to you about how to interpret different types of, uh, of biblical books. And um, I'm smiling because David's going to teach on biblical narrative, biblical stories here in a couple of weeks. And, and I know you'll be blessed if you're able to come and hear that, how we, how we ought to rightly interpret the Old Testament. Okay, So so a warning against false teachers, and then, and then he turns very quickly to remembering that Paul himself was a false teacher. As Paul corrects, as Paul gives instructions to Timothy about false teachers, and as he warns him and, and gives guidance, it's like what comes to mind is, you know what, I was guilty of that. And so he goes autobiographical. Look at this. He says, um, in verse twelve, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. By the way, footnote on that, he's not saying he wasn't guilty. What he's he's saying is he's admitting that he was doing exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were confident in their assertions. They were spreading instruction as self-proclaimed teachers, and yet he was ignorant. He was wrong in that. So this is interesting. As he's rebuking the false teachers, he now turns to his own story. And I want you to see why he does that. Look on your notes there. Uh, recognize the hope of the gospel to change lives. God can turn false teachers, blasphemers, Christian killers into servants of Christ, can't he? Paul saying to Timothy, these false teachers here, don't write them off. Instruct them, shepherd them, help them, and remember my example. I was once just like they were, and look what God did in my life because of His great mercy and grace shown to me. Um, this is uh, this is really instructive here. He says, secondly, uh, that, that he's going to thank God for giving him a significant ministry, even in spite of his past. Um, he says, um, God, uh, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I had this past and and you know this this reminds us guys that that we ought to never cease from prayerfully and uh, praying for and and instructing and encouraging people that, that are misguided we ought to never write them off as a lost cause um And that may be a family member, right? It may be that person you've you've poured your life out for 40 years and and their heart is hard to the gospel. And and, and we're tempted to just throw in the towel and say, you know what, things are never going to change. Paul uses his testimony here as an encouragement to Timothy who's facing some of the same opposition saying, hey, remember, remember what God did in my life? So don't give up. Uh, Encourage them, instruct them. And and remember, and and, and notice Paul's not here saying, you know, I'm the example. What is he putting the spotlight on here? The grace and mercy of a kind God who reached down and saved Paul and then put him on a path uh, of gospel ministry. So the the spotlight here is on the mercy and kindness of God uh, in that. God's grace is more than abundant to save even the worst of sinners. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm foremost of all. That's why we don't give up. That's why we remember the goal of our instruction is love, right? We further the gospel, we're aiming that everybody would love God and love neighbor, and we don't give up on anybody, we don't think anybody is a hopeless cause. Um, There are enemies of the gospel for sure, but our goal is not the annihilation of those enemies, the goal is the conversion of those enemies, and and our goal shows up in how we respond to people like that, doesn't it? I mean, when the, when those Mormon missionaries bang on the door, are you trying to rebuke them, show them you know better than they do? Or are you trying to convert them? And I think that's what goes back to what's in our heart, right? Is is this a a sincere heart, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith in what we're trying to do? Um, you know, Paul uses some strong language here. Look what he says. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. How can he say that? He persecuted the church, so we say, yeah, he, well, he, he makes the, you know, the, the, the church's most wanted list, whatever we want to call it, right? Um, I, I've wrestled, yeah, good. He, right right he has a right view of sin, a right view of God. Yeah, when Paul says that, we're not supposed to go. Oh, he's got a self-esteem problem. Think of how, when we read that, that is the true evaluation of a real Christian that understands the way things really are. I think Paul says this. Not because you know he polled a million people in in the ancient Near East and charted you know the the, the extent and, and egregious nature of their sin and said yeah I'm at the top of the list. I think what Paul said is of all the sinners I know, I know my own heart the most, and it's the ugliest heart I know. So so th- this is this is not a mark of some you know introspective low self-esteem apostle. This is a picture of true spiritual health. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior, is the way John Newton put it. And, and, And godly Christians of church history echo what Paul says. Seeing the ugliness and the sin and the wickedness of our own hearts is a mark of spiritual maturity insofar as that That guilt and that, that affirmation of, of our own sinfulness is coupled with a confident trust in the wonderful grace and mercy of Jesus. So God's grace is more than abundant to save even the worst of sinners. Don't, don't give up on that person you're praying for right now. Yeah, Rusty. It was, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So, so Paul had Paul had a, uh, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a, yeah. Right. I, I think that he probably had his uh, approval of Stephen's martyrdom in mind. Uh, maybe when he wrote that, uh, for sure. And that just that, that just, I don't know. I that just shows you, and it challenges me. I don't. It challenges you. How God thinks about people, even the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, people that, that murder other people unjustly. And what does he say? The grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant toward me and toward others like that. Look at that. Look at his perspective. God saved him the worst of sinners. Why? To demonstrate the reason Christ came. Look at verse 15. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Meaning, God's saving of Paul demonstrates that what Jesus came to do is really true, to save sinners. And there's no footnote that says, you know, moderate sinners. (laughs) It's any sinner, it's all sinners. Notice, secondly, it it was to demonstrate the extent of Christ's patience. Verse 16, Yet for this reason I found mercy. Why did God show mercy to Paul? So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Did you get that? God saves the chief and worst of sinners to demonstrate how patient he is with sinful people that reject him. And having seen that incredible expression of patience of God towards sinners, what does it do? It provides an example to us, doesn't it? An example to those of us who believe. Um, we, we, We could go around the room here. We all have... Areas right now where we are struggling to be patient with other people, don't we? And maybe sometimes that patience is being tried in arenas where people are unbelievers and need the gospel. And Paul says, you know why why God saved me? To demonstrate how patient he is. And you know why he did that? Because he calls us to emulate his patience with other people. We we put on display the patience of God towards sinners when we bear with sinners in a like way. We demonstrate the patience of God towards sinners when we show the same mercy and grace and long-suffering with them. And so we keep our eyes right here so that we don't grow weary in those relationships of patience with other people. Uh, Maybe that's kids, maybe that's parents, but... But we fix our eyes on that. Paul says, that's why God did that with me. So that I could learn patience. You could learn patience. And thirdly, to demonstrate to other sinners the hope that they might have in Christ if they believe. That's what he says there. That that he might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. We don't give up on other people. We don't conclude God has given up on them because of the display of patience that we see in God towards sinners. And what did that do? As he meditates on the patience of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God toward him, the chief of sinners, what does he do? Look at this. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, that's where we get the hymn, the only God, the honor and glory forever, amen. We need to remember that, that Paul's meditation on his own salvation not just kept him humble in his heart and hopeful for those around him, but led him to honor God in praise and worship. Um, we ought to meditate on the mercy and grace and patience that God has shown us, because that—that's the sort of spiritual jet fuel that that empowers a life of worship and praise to God. In fact, I just—just I, just hear me out, and then, then we'll quit. I would bet that part of the reason we flounder in a worship and praise and admiration of God is we are not meditating on the extent of our sin and the breadth of God's mercy and patience and grace toward us in our own salvation. Right? He who has been forgiven much does what? Loves much, right? There's a connection between that meditation and our praise. So so that's a good reminder for us to, to think often about our own sin and our own need for Christ and how incredibly patient and merciful He's been to us and that is that is what motivates and fuels a life of praise and worship. Well, let's do that. Father, thank you for the mercy you've shown us. Make us patient especially toward others. Help us to not lose heart for that that, that person that we've been praying for for decades. And we thank you that uh, your patience and mercy and grace are more than abundant to save even the chief of sinners. And that gives us a great confidence for our own hearts. It gives us a great confidence for those that we love, that we're praying for. Lord, help us to not be distracted from our mission. Help us to focus on things that further the gospel and love for you and love for neighbor. Make us effective in this generation that we live in. We want to complete our mission. We want to be faithful to what you called us to do. Help us to do that. Help us to do that even this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.